John, thank you, brother. Excellent talk. Love starting right there in the Old Testament, thinking about the, the relationship between church and missions. And I hope the rest of this conference, we're, we're thinking about what we hear from all the brothers sort of through that framework of ecclesiology, right? But let, 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 me, let me start even slightly bigger picture with kind of, okay, what is missions? What are, what are we talking about? What is missions? And I want to do it in a really nuts and bolts sort of way. Uh, literally three weeks ago, me and the three other elders of Chevrolet Baptist Church were sitting down for our meeting in which we decided we had, we had, we had $30,000 we've budgeted for missions for the year in our church plant. And we've surveyed the congregation in terms of like, hey, who are you guys already supporting? We've never done this before. It's our first year. Who are you guys already supporting? Who should we support? We have $30,000 to spend. We, we, we picked a portion and gave it to a cooperative program, percentage of the 30 to the cooperative program. And then we had four names we were thinking about to sort of divide it up. Two of them were overseas. Two of them are in uh, very poor settings in urban America. But the four individuals were kind of doing the same thing, planting churches. And one brother asked the question, well, should we be giving a certain, if this is our missions budget, should we be giving a certain priority to the guys overseas as opposed to the guys in America in poor settings. You talked about, you know, you have this Iraqi or these uh, Iranian dentist and North Korean grocer. I mean, how do you think about missions? I mean, you could do missions right there. But do you think, no, missions is I got to go across borders. How do we think about missions and our missions budget and what it is? Well, I think our context in Dubai is kind of an exception to the rule. I mean, generally speaking, when we think of missions, we're talking about crossing a sociolinguistic boundary for the sake of sharing the gospel. So it's, it's cross-cultural evangelism. And by cross-cultural, typically we're thinking in terms of, of language barrier or some other cultural barrier. So in Dubai, however, it's, it's just a unique kind of scenario where we have hundreds of nationalities who are speaking English mainly as a second language. So we do have direct missionary opportunity there in an unusual way. DC but that's is, kind of an exception. DC is not that much, but a little that way. And many urban churches are going to have some of that. That's right. Yeah. Are you still encouraging us? Are you encouraging my elder board as we think about where to spend the money to prioritize overseas over cross borders in a specific way relative to the Iranian neighbor or the local church down the street in a different kind of neighborhood? I think for that, you pray for wisdom for how the Lord would, how you would most faithfully use the resources that he's given you. But I do think it's symbolically significant if you think of Revelation 7 and where we're headed in a new heaven and a new earth with people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ from every tongue, tribe, people, and, and nation, we want to be extending our missions resources to other tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations. So however that's defined, I think you want to symbolically be committed to that. Do any of you want to tell me, Jonathan, you should take that 30000 and put it entirely overseas? If that's your missions budget, find another part of your budget for local stuff, but 
I don't want you to lose track of the emphasis on this. I would encourage that. Um, I, I think there's, there's some utility in that kind of clarity. If you think of the budget as a teaching document, yeah. and if one of the things you want to teach is this kind of focus on crossing culture, language, so on and so forth, one way to do that is to have that reflected very clearly in the budget, it, how you label that line item and what's in that line item. Um, and to have perhaps a different line item or some way of distinguishing uh, between those other sort of local things. And the other thing is that I think we want to encourage our congregations to understand that, that we are in the neighborhoods and in the relationships that we're in as the mission force locally, right? As the evangelistic disciple-making force locally. What we're doing in missions is a little bit different. We're trying to send the gospel where we aren't um, and, and perhaps where the bulk of the people can't or won't go. Uh, in God's providence. So I, I would want to preserve that thinking in, in some way, and one way of doing that might be to do that sort of budgetarily. And, and I would want to, I'd certainly want to prioritize the nation's just need and this call to uh, be God's people, use of God to bring the nations around the throne. So you just look at the, at the need around the world, the people who do not know, who do not have access. Uh, I, I don't think you put all of that money necessarily overseas because we do have to reach our Jerusalem. But uh, I would want to keep that priority clear. And even in what the BD's talking about, about using our budgets as ways to teach people, I also wouldn't want to prioritize global missions in a way that makes other kinds of helping local churches in the state seem uh, like it's not that important. It would make it seem disregarded as was less glorifying to Jesus and not something that also needs priority. So I would just want to be clear about why it is we separate the two and what's the importance of also serving local churches. See, in some ways, that's the tension we are feeling. In, in the background of this question is sort of missional thinking, which says, hey, we're all missionaries. And there can be a temptation, I think, to sort of downplay the overseas. Because, hey, we're, we gotta reach our neighborhood, we gotta reach. And, uh, and so we were trying to figure out, rightly balance, that sense of obligation. So we were looking at a, a church in a poor neighborhood in Philly, where we're not, and a church in a poor neighborhood in, in D.C., where we're not. And pitting that against a church in a young pastor plant in Brazil and one in the UAE. And it's just like, uh, should we feel a certain prior obligation overseas to Philly and D.C.? where we're not. Two reactions? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, one is I think it's helpful not to use missionary quite the way you're using the term. Okay. As a reference to all Christians. I, mean, I, I get that. I don't want to push against sort of a missional instinct and, and developing um, a, a real evangelistic disciple-making habit and culture and understanding of what a Christian is. Um, but I, I, I would kind of be in the camp where I, I want a word for that person that crosses linguistic, national, cultural lines to take the gospel where it's not known, right? So Good. maybe part of the tension comes out of even the way you're framing the question in that way. Um, so that's, that's just well, one. I'm, I'm framing it that way because I've, I've, I do feel like that idea of missions is getting lost for mission. 
there is a disappearance of the S in in uh, literature that I see. Well, and I think so. What I'm suggesting is I think that disappearance is yes. I think that disappearance is aided by calling every Christian a missionary. Everybody's a missionary. Nobody's a missionary. It's, it's kind of that thing that I'm saying. So I, I just around the language around this small point, uh, I think it's helpful to have some term for designating what we're talking about when we're talking about missions and mission and missionary and so on. Um, the other thing I think I'd want to encourage in that, in that tension is just a, maybe a healthy, prayerful, God-dependent sense of, Lord, help us do it all, right? So I know that in a, in a world with limited resources, you've got trade-offs, you've got decisions to make. I would lean toward prioritizing the international in part because I would assume that those churches stateside, where there's churches on every other corner, it's building relationships with other churches, might have actually more access to resources and relationships in that church in Turkey or what have you. Um, but I, So I would lean toward the prioritization of the international, given the sort of resource constraints and, and the urgency of getting the gospel where it's not known, uh, on the assumption that in inner city D.C., inner city Philly, there are churches there and relationships to be built. Uh, and accessibility resources that's different in that way. Mark, or any, any plug for holding on to the S when others are wanting to sort of blur it? Yeah, I think, I think it's an important distinction. I think a lot of times, as Christians, our, our desire, that I think is kind of strangely committed to missions and maybe evangelism, is to come up with one thing we can do that will cover everything. So let's just talk about everybody being a missionary or feels a thought that feels like if we, if we focus in on one person, then we'll neglect everything else. Like most Christians and churches I know can sort of chew gum and ride a bicycle at the same time. Like we can, we can emphasize the idea of identifying and sending people out with the gospel to places where there aren't many Christians, there aren't many churches. And we can also train our members to share the gospel with their neighbors we can tell them that that's a really important thing to do too. And we can plant other churches in nearby neighborhoods with even members of our own church moving over there. I just, and I see the same thing out sort of on the mission field, so to speak. People just want to come up with this one thing that we need to do. And kind of like you were saying, Thabiti, just let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, let John pastor his international church and evangelize some local people and some other missionaries would go, well, that's not really close to the local culture. Those people are kind of doing stuff in English. Well, great. Let those people plant a church in the local language, in a local neighborhood. Let's just keep doing all sorts of stuff. And then we'll all get together around the throne and, you know, Jesus will sort out what's happened and it'll all be fine. So I would just encourage us to, to just do all sorts of stuff. Anything else on this topic, brothers, of what is missions and, and the unique thing that it is when it might get blurred? Anything else? I appreciated the exciting vision of Isaiah 2. That's a great way to start out, brother. Yeah. That, that sense of the nations flowing there, you know, as the word of God goes out. And I think that's the kind of encouragement that I hope we'll keep getting through our messages. And I hope it comes to all you brothers and sisters here that this is not so much a, a guilt-driven, oh no, if we don't, terrible things happen, which is true, and we do have to think about that. But there's an even greater positive. The Lord is about doing this. He is on the move. We right here are a picture of the Great Commission being fulfilled. 
When he said that it would go to the uttermost parts of the earth, guess where we are? North Carolina, the uttermost parts of the earth. You know, if you're standing in Jerusalem, here we are, man. This is the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the other hemisphere. You know, it gets cold here. I mean, this is just a different kind of place, you know. And, and so he's, God is doing this. And I think whether we're talking about local church planting, like you guys planting the church that you guys are thinking about supporting, or we're talking about doing the kind of work, you know, that, that Chuck lectures on and teaches in the IMB or that John is encouraging all the time in Dubai, you know, oversees uh, other cultures. I, I like the way you use the word movement, you know, because I think that's just a missions movement. We want to see this movement. And I think that when, when you get the, the, that gene to uh, have an emphasis on missions, it will encourage evangelism. It will encourage the other stuff as well. And Jonathan, I think there is, there is a value in preserving a word, let's call it missions, for the particular activity of local churches in identifying certain individuals that meet qualifications that they think flow at least as implications from the Bible, and they give those people money and they send them somewhere where the church is not or the church is not strong, and they're doing that with the aim of establishing sound churches. And uh, yeah, I do understand in our, our culture, like people don't like to be left out, but it's helpful to have that category because otherwise then we lose the ability to qualify people to do that work. And I think, I think that's maybe something we've done in evangelicalism for the last 20, 30, 40 years of, of sending people who, whatever the qualifications could be, you know, they don't seem to have them. And we've not trained them carefully and sort of preserved particular people to do this. So I think that's a, a very useful thing to do. Let me turn the corner here and think about the ecclesial vision that you began to cast for us, John. Um, you talked about examples of missionaries showing up, say in Dubai, and not doing a good job of integrating with the church and sort of going at it on their own. Do you have positive pictures of what you would love to see missionaries do? Oh yeah, the brothers who have had the most fruitful ministries that I've observed have been a part of the church. And, and they came with an agency? And a part of an agency as well. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't neglect the congregation because they love Christ and they love his people. So they had a multifaceted ministry. Um, and uh, f funnily enough, they, they often met Muslims and Muslim background believers who they were uniquely suited to help through relationships in the church. So if we've got a congregation of hundreds of people that are dispersed about throughout the community, they're going to be interacting with more people than any one individual missionary can. And as they become known as uh, equipped and qualified and helpful, then as they build relationships in the church, well, people are naturally going to send uh, Muslims who are seeking or Muslim background believers who really need to be equipped to that person. Mm -hmm. So the most fruitful missionaries we've had are those who are the most plugged into the church. Well, and John, you told that very moving story at the end of Christy Wilson. And Christy Wilson, I, I had him as a missions professor at Gordon-Conwell. And Christy's a great, he's planted that church in Afghanistan that the authorities went and tried to dig up that thought it was an underground church. But I think Christy's a great example of a brother who I think he went out with the Presbyterian Mission Board. So he went out with the Mission Board. But what did he do? He planted local churches. So, I mean, the, the two often go together well. Well, I think, Jonathan, there's, there is a growing recognition that our, that our missionaries need to be invested where they are. Uh, we see too many folks struggle on their own. Uh, just the practical reality of when you're by yourself in a tough cross-cultural experience, uh, you need folks with you. Uh, 
uh, and we still want missionaries who are out there on the front line, who are out there uh, pouring their lives into reaching people who haven't been reached. But I think practically we're recognizing there is, there is a need. You better have some support system where you are, and the local church is that, is that place. Amen. God bless the frontier missionaries who are in places where there is no church. We want to see more of that. I'm just saying that in a, in a more globalized society, that's less and less the case. If you go to a major city, you're, you're most likely going to be encountering other Christians who've already been meeting there, worshiping in different languages. And if you can plug into the work that's already begun, you can multiply your influence in that way. I love you sort of stressing that point, brother, because there is a, there's, a, there's potential for a kind of mutuality there. You're pointing to how that local church can help the missionary in, in part of what the missionary is looking to do. But I often want to encourage people to also think that they can contribute to the health of that local church uh, if they invest and plug in and, and do things that actually all Christians should be doing, making other disciples in the life. Okay, so I'm just curious whether, Jonathan, you or, or John, you, in this vision that everybody's getting on board here, all the healthy local churches, the way we do missions, what if I'm a pastor from North Carolina or Virginia and I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking like, yeah, our, our church, we give money to the International Mission Board. We go on short-term trips. How can they positively try to forward getting healthy churches, being a part of, you know, a movement that gets healthy churches going in Afghanistan, you know, or healthy churches going anywhere in the world where the gospel is especially absent, it seems. What practically does it look like way over here on the church side in North Carolina or Virginia for the pastor who said, we can give money to the IMB, we can pray, what else? I know you're not pastoring a church here. You're pastoring a church in Dubai. But from, from where you're standing, what should a brother pastor be doing? One other thought that comes to mind is if you're sending people, and we want to pray and, and work to that end to be sending people overseas, send people overseas who are actually biblically qualified. If they're church planters, then they need to be qualified to be an elder. They need to be able to teach. And I have encountered some people who claim to be church planters, and I don't think they were qualified. A book that I found really helpful for that is Andy Johnson's book on missions. He's giving a perspective to the sending church on how they can be more healthy in sending people out. Andy's book is that new little beige hardback book you got in your packet when you came, in your bag. The other thing I'd say, Mark, is I think if we're going to love the church overseas, we have to love the church here. And I think part of where we, where we have to start is as pastors I think we have to ask the honest question, do I really love the church I lead? Because uh, sometimes we're pastoring messy places. And, and what's really helpful to me is to go back to 1 Corinthians and see the Apostle Paul say in chapter 1, I thank God for you. In the last chapter say, I love you. And in between he says, you're an absolute mess. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's where we have to be. If, if we're sending out people who don't love their church here, because we don't love the church here, we shouldn't be surprised when they don't love the church over there. Crossing the ocean doesn't change our heart. Uh, and so we really do have to learn how to love the church here. Yeah. And, well, uh, I was going to say on the same subject. And jumping on that, I think as pastors and as church leaders or friends or people that are going to be congregations that are sending people out or support people, if people say they're a church planter, you know, if somebody's, they're out as a missionary, I'm a missionary church planter. I did this for, I've been doing this for like 15 years, and it's one of the most encouraging and discouraging things I do. But it's often really encouraging, but sometimes really discouraging, 
is if somebody says, I'm a church planner, I'll go, oh, that's wonderful. What is a church? And the... So you ask the, them literally to define what a church is. Yeah, I'll just is. say, that's wonderful. What is a church? And sometimes, like, kind of like a guy describing his wife, you know, he'll just, somebody will say, oh, this is what the church is. It's a bride of Christ. This is how it's organized. This is what it is. And that's so encouraging but I also have conversations where they'll say, they'll just kind of hem and haw, and they're not really sure, and I'm like, how in the world can this person be a church planter? So at the very least, if you're gonna send people out or support people that say they're a church planter, make sure they know what a church is from the Bible. Uh, There's just, I can't think how you could possibly do that work if you don't know that. And then they need to, like Chuck says, they need to be somebody that sounds like they're describing their wife. Like, they love the church. You know, this is what their life's about. Um, I think that's just a simple, very socially awkward thing that we could all make a part of our conversations with missionary church planners that might bear really good fruit. Yeah, and I was going to add, we, for pastors here, we should assume it's our church's responsibility to train missionaries. We're not just waiting for a missionary to show up and ask to be supported. We're not just waiting for missions agencies to train up missionaries, but understand it's our responsibility to train up the kinds of people who will go. So we want to preach in ways that make people want to go, and we want to very intentionally spend time with people and uh, help them understand our love for the church. Uh, so, that, yeah, so, so we're not just looking for folks to give money to, but we're helping to produce kind of disciples that will go. And what that training looks like for me is, by and large, how we train elders, how we raise up new pastors in our church. Certainly, if somebody's going overseas, he wants to show a, um, a heart for crossing cultures and dealing with people from different cultures. But fundamentally, he wants to have the character qualifications of Titus 1. He wants to be able to defend and refute the truth. You don't refute the truth. That's right. Refute falsehood Uh, Well, and and John, you said it in your talk One of your points of application was Missionaries are models So if we're going to send people out They better be models of what we're talking about And if they don't model it We shouldn't blame the mission boards We need to blame the churches that send them One one, one of the words of advice I gave to David Platt When he was going to the IMB I, I said David, you've got to realize you're not, the, you're not the IMB president for Brook Hills. You're the IMB president for 40,000 churches. So you've you got to be loving these 40,000 churches with all their variety, with what they're like. We are the organization together that sends people from there. So if we want to see the missionaries improve, we can do things like you, Chuck, at the IMB. But I think the real work is with us. It's here. It's us pastors. I mean, we're the ones who have to get to work on how are we evangelizing, how are we discipling, what are we seeing raised up as elders, as leaders in our local churches, because all the poor seminaries and mission boards can do is work with what we give them. But we pastors are the ones, if you don't like someone in the SBC, look in the mirror, you know, and I'm sure it's true for other non-denominational PCA, you know, other groups too, we all all have those same kind of problems, but it's just, we're the ones who have to take this onboard Missionaries are models. So we need to be working on that at the local church level. Yeah, even from the seminary perspective, if, our job would be a lot easier if the students sent to us came from churches that poured into them, discipled them. When they come to us looking for mentors, it's usually because no one has ever invested in them. And that just makes our job that much harder. And then somehow we have to figure out how to, how to turn them around and get them ready to go to the nations when that job begins first at the feet of the local church. 
Mark, your question, what can sending churches do to embrace this ecclesial vision is precisely where I wanted to go. And, and I think kind of the one takeaway I'd want from this session is, is sort of summing up what you guys are saying. So I hear you saying you can't export what you don't manufacture. If you're not manufacturing healthy churches that people love, if you're not manufacturing pastors who know how to pastor, you're not going to export healthy churches, pastors, right? And that means taking greater care with the missionaries you're engaging with overseas, making sure they're doing what they should be doing. Use the agency, but finally we got to do it too. We can't just outsource it to the agency. Anything else to sum up how we help sending churches not do this, but do that? Any last make it as practical as you can for these I guys. just want to say something cheery that I just think, you know, again, John talked about globalization, the new day that we're in. I just think the Lord is so kind to North American Christians. We, we have been, on the one hand, comparatively generous, but on the other hand, in many ways, comparatively selfish. The Lord is so kind, He brings the world to us. You know, He, he makes cities like Dubai all over the place. So, pastors here, four of us are pastoring in the D.C. area, you know. Chuck's here in the, in the Research Triangle and, and trips in Dallas. Well, well, all the areas that we represent are areas that have a lot of, of internationals. And these days in the United States, even if you're in a smaller or rural area, there are often ways much more close to hand where you can be involved in reaching those who are of a different language, a different culture, a different religion than our grandparents' generations could have done. And that's, that's a kindness of the Lord and, and allowing us to have an international student ministry that reaches out to students in China because they're with us right now. We don't have to go to China to do that. It's still good to go to China. But it just, it's amazing the way the Lord is going, okay, okay, I see. You guys are like this. You're not going to move. You've got really nice houses. You have this certain level of comfort. You want this many Chick-fil-A's around you. So it. I, I am going to do some weird things with the economy worldwide where I'm going to bring a bunch of Chinese people here and I'm going to bring a bunch of people from Africa here, and the Middle East here, and Indians here. Okay, now, if I brought them here, now, will you guys help? Because, see, if, if we help here, my guess is that's going to help us then to get less selfish and to love more so that more of us will go there and help even more. Last question before lunch. John, can you tell us, do you have any cool stories you can tell us, like, of either cool things you've seen over there, maybe, maybe people coming in from cl more closed countries you're able to train, or people coming in that you've seen, just anything at all that's not going to get anybody in trouble. <laughs> is, this, is this being like on the web? Is this live on the web? Maybe. So just assume it is. It is? That's, oh, that's it what is. I'm saying. Hey, just, everybody. <laughs> like, you know, no, no proper Hello, nouns, but web. I don't know, anything you can tell that's just cool and encouraging from your where it is such a, it's a privilege to live out there. I remember I'd been there for maybe a couple of years and I got an email from a guy named Mahmoud. And he said, hey, I'm a Muslim, but I'm interested in learning more about Jesus. He had found the Evangelical Church website and he knew to go there to learn more about Christ. And we got to know him. He got introduced to the church. He started coming along regularly. He was soundly converted. He got baptized. He showed real ministry gifts. He was eventually brought into our pastoral internship program. Then he ran into problems with his family. His family found out and were posing a threat to him. And his family was from Syria. 
and um, he eventually sought asylum and went to the United Kingdom where he continued serving on a pastoral staff there. So we've had a number of things like that. I remember an Iranian couple coming in off the street during the week and they said, uh, we're disenchanted with Islam and we're looking for spiritual truth. So we had the opportunity to introduce them to Christ. They came to faith and were baptized. And um, what a privilege it is to live out there. We've seen that happen lots. True or false pastors are coming from other countries around you. You're able to equip them and send them back? Yeah, yeah, we, we're committed to pastoral internship training. We've had brothers from Tunisia, Afghanistan, Egypt, Palestine, Syria in the program. And our goal is to invest in these brothers and then send them back to their home countries because they can do things that we could never do. They know the language, they know the culture. And we're in a situation in Dubai where it's a transportation hub, they can get to us uh, easily and kind of under the radar. So we've got someone from uh, North Africa who's with us right now and who's in a period of, of intensive training and then we're just gonna send him back. So we're thankful for that opportunity. If pastors want to help partner in this, do you guys have any financial needs or do you kind of take care of that yourself? We do these, we take care of three per year. It costs about $20,000, $22,000 to fund an internship per year. We'd like to have six or seven of these guys. So if people want to band together and support us in the work, we'd love to do that. John, what, what brings them to, to Dubai in the first place? Through networks of relationships that we have in the region and that we've been trying to cultivate for years. So you learn about them and bring them into the internship? That's right. So yeah. they're not already there. Somebody's yeah, we, go, we get connect, them. You bring them in and they come in knowing they're going to go back out. That's right. Okay. And it's a nine-month program. We provide housing, visa. We uh, teach them. We model ministry. They attend our elders meetings. They're kind of brought onto the staff, but but not in such a way as to serve us so much as to observe us, and we invest in them. Have you had folks that came to Dubai for other reasons, business, otherwise, and you, you trained them and they decided, I want to go back to invest in my people? Yeah, that would be our, the members of our church. Okay. You know, people do come to Dubai for all kinds of reasons, typically for jobs. We've seen them grow spiritually, and then they go back to their home country with a new vision for okay. Christianity. Good, good. Yeah, one of the glories of ministry in Dubai is nobody ever stays there. Like, once they stop working, they go back where they're from. They're not, they're, nobody retires in Dubai. They legally it's can't. It's the perfect platform for sending people back to their home country. It's also kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> Said the pastor. <laughs> the, the one Sunday I preached there afterwards, I had a gospel conversation. I think it was the third or fourth she had had with a, with a Muslim background, becoming a believer. And I think you may have eventually baptized her. I forget how that story went, but I mean, what a, what a privilege that was.